Chapter One of China and the Chinese. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Holly Rushick. China and the Chinese by Edmund Plochut. Translated by N. Donver. Chapter One. The Delights of Exploring Unknown Lands, St. Louis and the Tartars of Olden Times, The Anglo-French Force Enters Peking, Terrors of the Red Devils, The Cup of Immortality, The Sons of Heaven, Hong Kong as it was and is, The Treaty of Tianjin, The Game of Mora, First Tea Party in the Palace of Peking, Chinese Agriculture and the Love of Flowers, Chinese literati, an awkward meeting between two of them, love of poetry in China, Voltaire's letter to the poet king, the Chinese army, the Shu King, or sacred book of China, Yao and his work, Cheng, the lowly-born emperor, the Huang He, or China's sorrow, Yu, the engineer and his work, Cheng chooses Yu to reign after him, the foundation of the hereditary monarchy in China. I do not deny the happiness of a life spent beneath the shadow of the belfry of one's native place, in all the unruffled peace of one's own home, surrounded by one's own family. But, after all, what are such joys as these compared to those of the explorer who goes forth to meet the unknown, ready for all that may be tied, making fresh discoveries at every turn, gladly facing all dangers, and rejoicing in the ever-changing, ever-widening horizon before him. Who would care to forgo the joys of memory, the power of living over again in old age the adventures of youth, of seeing once more with the mind's eye the wonders of the far distant lands visited when the mind was still buoyant, the sight still undimmed, the limbs still all in the vigor of manhood? Happy mortal indeed is he who, thoroughly imbued with the spirit of the discoverer, looks upon death itself not as the end of all things, but the threshold of a new world, the beginning of yet another journey, fraught with the deepest interest, to a born all the more fascinating because of the deep mystery in which it is shrouded. This was how I reasoned with myself when I was a mere lad eagerly devouring the accounts of the work of the great early explorers, Marco Polo, the Duplex, La Perose, Bougainville, Dumont d'Urville, Christopher Columbus, Mungo Park, the Landers, etc., not to speak of Swift's fascinating romance, Gulliver's Travels, and the yet more thrilling Robinson Crusoe of Defoe. Like all boys with vivid imaginations, I was fired with a longing to emulate all these heroes, and said to my mother, I have made up my mind to be a sailor. My ardor was, however, quickly quenched when I saw my mother's beautiful eyes fill with tears at the thought of parting from me. This did not prevent me from leaving France a few years later, for I found myself, whilst still quite a young man, free to go whither I would, and I made up my mind to make many a long and interesting journey. Of course, I expected to meet with dangers and misfortunes, but I felt sure that any such drawbacks 
would be more than counterbalanced by the grand sights it would be my privilege to witness. My anticipations were in every way fully realized, and if after wandering all over the world I refrain from saying with Terence, I am a man, and nothing in the nature of man is strange to me. It is merely because poets alone are privileged to speak with such egotistical assurance. I had already spent a considerable time in Oceania and a few months in Egypt when I landed at Hong Kong on the very threshold of the ancient Chinese empire, which, according to well-authenticated annals, is older even than the mighty and venerable Egypt of the pharaohs. I went to China as much to study her past on the spot as to be one of the first to hail that transformation which, when I arrived, was already on the eve of its inauguration, and is now rapidly becoming an accomplished fact. There was indeed urgent need for haste if I wished to study that moribund China so long closed to Europeans before the great change came, and cared to gaze upon her far-stretching tablelands, girt about by heights, crowned with never-melting snow, ere their solitudes were broken in upon by the desecrating steam-engine, in districts whence in medieval times great hordes of yellow-skinned, fierce-eyed barbarians, their long black hair floating on their shoulders, swept westward to devastate Europe. In those days, 500,000 Tartars invaded Russia, took possession of Moscow, burnt Krakow, and penetrated as far as Hungary. St. Louis of France, who was then on the throne, stood in the greatest dread of them, but this did not prevent him from making a joke about them, quoted by the Sieur de Joinville, which, considering the state of affairs at the time, speaks well for his pluck and sense of humor. Mother, he said to Queen Blanche of Castile, if these Tartars come here, we must make them go back to the Tartarus from which they come. Time, however, never fails to bring about the poetic justice of revenge. Six centuries after the sack of Krakow, a little Anglo-French force entered Peking with drums beating and flags flying, pillaged the imperial palaces, and returned to Europe laden with rich spoil. Chinese, Tartars, Mongols, and Manchus had all alike allowed themselves to be beaten by a mere handful of resolute men. What had they to oppose the European tactics, European weapons, and above all, European discipline? Bows and arrows, old-fashioned muskets, spears, and shields adorned with fantastic designs. There was nothing for them to do but to run away. Not that they were cowards, for they never have any fear of death, but simply because resistance was hopeless. Most of the generals in command of the army followed the usual custom in cases of defeat, and voluntarily emptied the bowl of poisoned opium to save themselves from being triumphed over by their enemies. At Peking, Canton, and many other centers of population in the vast empire, the terrified women flung themselves into the wells to escape the violent death they expected the red devils would otherwise have inflicted on them. Only some forty years ago, what did that immense multitude of Asiatic men and women know about us Europeans? just about as much and no more than we did of them. One thing only is certain, that in the heroic days of the founders of the dynasty, from Huang Ti, the Yellow Emperor, to Qianglua, the poet sovereign, 
more than one ruler of China had drunk from the cup of immortality, that is to say, the cup of poison, rather than live to see the enemy enter his palaces as a conqueror. Enervated by a long course of self-indulgence, the sons of heaven, as the emperors of China proudly style themselves, have degenerated terribly, and what with their own weaknesses and the arrogant encroachments of the eunuchs who guard the imperial harem, many of the sovereigns would have been deposed, but for the intervention now of an empress dowager, now of some favorite wife, who, seizing the reins of power, has wielded the scepter with virile strength and skill. In 1851, when the English took possession of the island of Hong Kong, it was but a rugged, conical-shaped rock, dreary and forbidding in appearance. The Chinese then living on it were enraged at the intrusion of the foreigners, and one of them, the only baker on the island, resolved to dispose of the intruders in one blow. He decided to poison them, and with this end in view, he put arsenic into all the bread he supplied to the foreigners. He overreached himself, for the dose was too strong, and suspicion was at once aroused. Those who tasted the bread escaped with violent sickness, and the English were not going to abandon the place for a reason so insignificant as that. Hong Kong is now a maritime port of the first rank, and its harbor is one of the finest and most beautiful in the whole world. The town boasts of hotels managed on the European system, and the slopes of the rocks are covered from the seashore to the highest point of the island with tasty villas. It is to opium that other poison responsible for the death of so many celestials, and as potent in its effects as the arsenic with which the patriotic baker tried to kill off all the foreigners, that Hong Kong owes its immense prosperity. The French did much to aid the English in inaugurating that prosperity in 1857 and 1858, when they joined them as allies in the brief campaign which resulted in the taking of Canton and the signing of the celebrated Treaty of Tianjin. The various stipulations of that treaty, the full significance of which the Chinese do not seem to have realized at the time, included the right to the allies of appointing diplomatic agents to the court of Peking, and the opening of five fresh ports to European commerce, whilst a strip of territory on the mainland, opposite to the island of Hong Kong, was ceded to the British colony. The benefits which accrued to France were small, but the increase of British trade was enormous, and from that time to this, the Grand Harbor has been one of the chief naval stations of the East. In spite of its prosperity and importance, however, the town is anything but a pleasant place to stop in, and the foreign visitor soon gets tired of being jostled about by busy coolies and tipsy sailors. The great delight of the latter is to get drunk in the brandy stores of Victoria Street, and then to dance, not strange to say, with women, but without partners, to the music of a violin and a big drum. In the evening, the floating and resident population alike resorting crowds to the opium dens and houses of ill fame in the upper portions of the town. No one seems to feel any shame at being seen to enter these places, the windows of which are wide open so that all can look into the brightly illuminated rooms, whence proceeds the sound of oaths in all manner of languages, whilst the loud clash of gongs mingles with the muffled songs of the Chinese beauties and every now and then a shower of crackers is flung into the street below, bursting into zigzags of fire 
on the heads of the startled passers-by. In the eyes of the masters of the island, the intense commercial activity of the day atones for the dissipations of the night. Contact with Europeans has, however, done little, if anything, to modify the ideas and customs of the Chinese. A few of the great native merchants, it is true, are willing now and then to drink a glass of champagne with the representatives of foreign houses, and to teach them the game of Mora, which, strange to say, is to all intents and purposes the same as that played all over Italy, and is so well described by Mrs. Eaton in her Rome in the 19th century. Mora, she says, is played by the men, and merely consists in holding up in rapid succession any number of fingers as they please, calling out at the same time the number their antagonist shows. Mora seems to differ in no respect from the Micare digitus of the ancient Romans. If it be a fact, as some assert, that the various races of the world are more truly themselves in their games than in their work, this similarity, in a pastime, played by people so different as the Chinese and the Italians, would have a deep psychological significance. However that may be, drinking champagne and playing mora together do not lead to any real friendship or intimacy between the Celestials and their hated foreign guests. There is not, and it seems as if there could never be, any true rapprochement, and this fact is at the root of the anxiety of statesmen for the future, in spite of the apparent progress made in the introduction of European ideas into the very stronghold of Chinese fanaticism. The Palace of Peking, where a few months ago, on the occasion of her birthday, the Dowager Empress held the first reception of European ladies, which was hailed by the European press as the commencement of a new era for China. An account of this historic tea party may well be added here, for its being given was truly among the most remarkable events which have taken place in the century now so near its close. It seems that Lady MacDonald, the wife of the British minister, was the prime mover in bringing about this startling innovation in the customs of the most conservative of all modern nations. The fact that it was the guests themselves who compelled the hostess to invite them detracted not at all from the cordiality of their reception. Received at the entrance to the precincts of the palace by numerous mandarins in brilliant costumes, the visitors were carried on state chairs to the electric tramway, strange anomaly in such a stronghold of retrogression as the capital of the celestial empire, and thence escorted to the audience chamber by a group of ladies of the court specially selected to attend them. In the throne room, the empress and her unfortunate son, the nominal ruler of China, were seated side by side on a raised dais, behind a table decorated with apples and chrysanthemums, in the simple but effective Chinese manner. Presents and compliments were exchanged, a grand luncheon was served, over which the Princess Ching presided, and when tea was handed round later, the Dowager Empress again appeared, and sipped a little of the national beverage from the cup of each minister's wife. Finally, when the time for leave-taking came, the astute Dowager, giving way to an apparently uncontrollable burst of emotion, embraced all her visitors in turn. Time alone can prove whether this kiss were indeed one of peace or a future betrayal. In the eyes of the court officials and their ladies, it must have appeared far more startling than any of the political changes with which the air is rife. 
The Chinese people, who know next to nothing of what is going on, and are more ignorant of the transformation taking place than even the illiterate Europeans, are as indifferent to the past as to the future. They have been accustomed for centuries to obey unchanging laws of a wisdom acknowledged by even hostile critics, and startling innovation touching their own lives is the one thing which moves them out of their constitutional apathy. Agriculture is the favorite occupation of the Chinese, and they consider the tilling of the ground almost a religious duty. It has been customary for many ages for the supreme leader to turn over a few furrows at the beginning of the agricultural year, that is to say the spring, and in all the provinces of the vast empire a similar ceremony is performed by the delegate of the emperor. Flowers are everywhere cultivated, though generally in pots, with an enthusiasm amounting to passion, and marvelous skill is shown in the growing of dwarf trees, which produce quantities of fruit. In a word, vegetation in China is stamped with an originality, setting it apart from that of any other country. In irrigation and the use of manure, Chinese gardeners were long far in advance of Western nations. The chief ambition of every native of China is to leave behind him sons, who, on his death, will give to his memory the homage he himself rendered to that of his own father, for it is in the reverence in which ancestors are held that the Chinese concentrate all their religious feeling. Even Shang-Ti, or the god of heaven Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Confucius, only take secondary rank as compared with these ancestors. The literati, or scholars of China, have won their much-coveted distinction by many very severe examinations in the so-called king, or the five sacred books, and the works of the great philosophers. Armed with a diploma securing to him the rank of a scholar, its fortunate possessor may aspire to the very highest functions of the empire. So very many win that diploma, however, and the numbers increase so rapidly every year, that, as in France and in England, there are not enough appointments for those qualified to receive them. In spite of this, the scholar, even when out of place, commands the respect of all who have not been promoted to the grade he has won. In his interesting account of his travels in Asia, Marcel Monnier gives a very pregnant illustration of the state of things I have been describing. As I was leaving the rampart, he says, I witnessed a curious scene illustrative of the esteem in which, in this land, where an hereditary aristocracy does not exist, is held the one ennobling rank, that of being the owner of a paper diploma. My bearers had just entered a very narrow causeway between two rice fields, when they were suddenly brought to a halt by another chair coming from the opposite direction. This chair was occupied by a young man in elegant attire, wearing spectacles, and with a general air about him of being pleased with himself. Apparently, he was a scholar, fresh from examinations. The bearers on each side parlayed together, but neither seemed disposed to yield place to the other. The discussion seemed likely to be interminable when the scholar intervened, and addressing the chief of my bearers, shouted haughtily to him, Why don't you get out of the way of a licentiate of Kansu? My chief porter, a big sturdy fellow of about forty, did not move, but without budging an inch replied with equal haughtiness, A licentiate? And of what year, pray? Then, without giving the other time to answer, he quickly dived into the little leather bag hanging from his waistband, brought out a greasy paper, and proudly unfolded it 
as if it were a flag, before the eyes of his astonished questioner. Look, he said. The young man took the paper with the very tips of his fingers, but he had scarcely glanced at the magic inscription on it before he handed it back with a respectful inclination of the head, at the same time ordering his men to withdraw. My porter, too, had his diploma, and he had had it for a long time. That of recent date had to give way to the earlier one. My chair passed on in triumph, whilst that of the newly created scholar humbly waited at the side of the road in the rice field. The Chinese have the trading instinct as fully developed as the descendants of Shem. They carry on commerce with the same wonderful finesse, the same keen eye for a bargain, and they are as fond of money as the Jews themselves. At the same time, in really important affairs, they are as much to be trusted, as thoroughly loyal to the other side, as any great merchant of the city of London, or the Rue de Santy in the French capital. These Chinese traders gave credit for enormous sums to the first foreign firms which had the audacity to found the Canton factories. On the faith of their signatures alone guaranteeing eventual payment, the heads of these foreign firms found themselves trusted with whole cargoes of tea and silks. After the failure of the Union Bank of the Cantois National des Comptes and certain great American houses, this giving of credit was discontinued, but that it was ever granted remains a most significant fact. One proof of the extreme caution which succeeded the extraordinary confidence is that there are no branches of the great Chinese firms of Shanghai and Hong Kong in Paris, Marseille, or Lyons. This is really no great loss, for the West will be invaded all too soon by the yellow races. In Asia, there are many more mystic dreamers and poets than is generally supposed. A Chinese mystic is called a bonza, or a talapoin, the former word being of Japanese origin, introduced to China by Europeans. Women who devote themselves to a religious life are called bonzesses. But as certain abuses crept in of a kind which can readily be imagined, a very wise law was passed some time ago, forbidding any woman to become a priestess till after her fortieth year, and certain censors have long advocated a yet further higher limit of age. Amongst young women of the higher classes in the remote East, especially amongst those whose beauty destines them for the harem, poetry is held in high esteem. On the richly lacquered screens and on the delicately colored fans so popular in China are many representations of frail Chinese or Japanese beauties tracing certain letters of the Mandarin alphabet with a fine pencil held in their tapering fingers with the characteristic pink nails. The words formed by these letters make up poetic phrases imbued with all the freshness and grace of the fair young girls who transcribe them. In them are sung the praises of the flowers of the hawthorn, the peach tree, the sweet briar, and even of a certain savory tea. More than one Chinese emperor has done homage to the muses, and the most celebrated of these crowned poets was Qianlong of the Tartar Manchu dynasty, who died at the end of the 18th century, and to whom Voltaire addressed the celebrated letter in verse, of which the royal recipient was probably only able to understand and with that considerable difficulty. The last few lines, which are quoted here. Receive, celestial king, the compliments I write, to one whose mighty throne stands on a double height. The western world knows well, 
in spite of all my crimes. I have a deep regard for monarchs who make rhymes. O thou whose soul is lit by art's poetic fires, I pray thee tell me if your prosody requires that you and far Peking, like us, must e'en submit to bind your thoughts and rules to make the tenses fit. Thus, if you choose to take the Alexandrine beat, two equal lines must walk on six plain equal feet. And so one half for rhyme, the other for sense, the whole of one great work to half you may condense. The fame of two other Chinese poets, who flourished in the eighth century of our era, has also come down to us. These were Chu Fu and Li Taipei, who, as Malwerby in France, were the first to reform poetry in their native land, lying down certain rules, which are still observed in the present day. The peace enjoyed for so long a period by the country under consideration has led to the profession of arms being held of small account. Until quite recently, all warriors had to do was to put down local revolts or to win for themselves a good drubbing from some aggrieved foreigner. The weakness and defective organization of Asiatic armies is well known and is proved afresh at every contact with a European force. The thorough inefficiency of that of China was forcibly brought out in the recent war with Japan, when the latter country showed itself to be so far in advance of its antagonist in every way. Nothing but drilling by European officers for at least half a century could make Chinese soldiers at all formidable to white troops. It is just the same with the people of Korea, Annam, Tonquin, and Siam. It will, of course, be urged, but look at the Japanese. They, too, belong to the despised yellow races, yet have they not proved themselves able to organize a campaign? Are they not full of warlike energy and martial ability? Do they not also take high rank as imaginative artists? In what do the white races excel? To all these queries we reply, the assumption that the Japanese belong to the same race as the yellow natives of the continent of Asia has to be proved. The children of the land of chrysanthemums and of the rising sun indignantly repel this hypothesis, and such authorities on ethnology as Comfer, Golowin, Klaproth, and Siebold also reject it. Moreover, in this world, everything is relative, and because the Japanese troops, armed with weapons of precision, were able to beat the badly equipped Chinese forces, it does not follow that they could do the same if pitted against European soldiers. Whether they could or not still remains to be proved. Before penetrating into the interior of the country and studying the actual customs of the inhabitants at the present day, it will be well to glance back to the remote times when China first became a nation. Very interesting details of those early days have been preserved in the traditions of the Celestials, and from them we gather that the first dwellers in the land lived, as did so many of the races of Europe, in the forests or in caves, clothing themselves in the skins of the wild beasts slain in the chase, whose flesh supplied them with food. The first efforts at civilization appear to have been made in the northwest of the vast country, amongst the tribes camped on the banks of the Huanghu, or Yellow River. The chiefs of these tribes gradually contracted the habit of making regular marriages and living a home life with their families. 
To protect their wives and children, they built huts. They discovered how to make fire, and with its aid, to fashion agricultural implements and weapons. They knew how to distinguish plants good for food from those dangerous to human life. They fixed precise dates for the commencement of each of the four seasons, invented various systems of calligraphy, finally adopting the one still in use, and they acquired the art of weaving silk and cotton, which, according to the eminent sinologist Le Bois of Strasbourg, recently deceased, they learnt from watching the spiders at work. Until the 3rd century BC, China was divided into small states, the weaker tributary to the stronger, the latter independent. The two celebrated emperor, Xin Chi Huangti, who 200 years before the Christian era ordered the destruction by fire of all books, united the various little kingdoms into one, and it was only in his time that the Chinese empire, properly so-called, began. At this period, too, the name of Sina, or China, originally that of the district governed by the incendiary, came to be given to the whole country. The most important historical documents are those making up what is called the Shu King, dating from about B.C. 500 and written by a certain Kuang Tian. This valuable book has been translated into French by P. Goubille and L. Biot, and its history is very romantic. It was supposed that every copy has been burnt by the agents of the Xin Qi Huang Ti, but an old literate, Fu Chang by name, had learned it by heart, and later one copy engraved on pieces of bamboo was found hidden in the wall of an old house which was being pulled down. This sacred book, which is indeed a literary treasure, is now more than 2300 years old, and it contains extracts from works yet more ancient, so that it is the very best guide in existence to the early history of China. It begins with a description of a chief named Yao, who, according to official Chinese chronology, flourished some 2,350 years before the Christian era. If the portrait is not flattered, Yao must have been a perfect man. He lived in the province now known as Chenxi, and like some great illumination, he attracted to himself all the barbaric hordes in the neighborhood. His first care was to teach them to honor the Shangti, or Tian, that is to say, the supreme god. He also employed certain men to watch the course of the heavenly bodies, or rather to continue the study of the stars begun before his time. Not from any curiosity as to the science of astronomy, strictly so called, but that agriculturalists might learn the right seasons for the work they had to perform. According to the Shu King, the year was already divided in China into 366 days and these days into four very strictly defined periods, beginning at the times enumerated below. 1. The day and night of equal length, marking the middle of the spring season, or what is now known in Europe as the equinox. 2. The longest day, marking the middle of the summer, now called the summer solstice. 3. The day and night of equal length, marking the middle of the autumn. 4 the shortest day, marking the middle of the winter solstice. Yao, having asked for a man capable of aiding him to govern people well, his own son was the first to be suggested as a suitable person, but he was rejected, the father saying, he is deficient in rectitude and fond of disputing. 
Another candidate was sent away because he did a great deal of unnecessary talking about things of no value and pretended to be humble, although his pride was really boundless. Then a certain Chung was brought forward, renowned for his virtues in spite of his obscure birth. Although he was the son of a blind father and of a wicked mother, who treated him cruelly, whilst his brother was puffed up with excessive pride, Chung yet loyally performed his filial duties, and even succeeded, as it were, unconsciously in correcting the errors of his relations, and saving them from the commission of serious crimes. He was quoted as the greatest known example of the practice of that most honored of all virtues in China, filial piety, which is looked upon by the celestials as the source of every good action of justice and humanity. Chung, therefore, was chosen, and he did not disappoint the hopes Yao had founded upon his rectitude and ability. The sacred book praises the justice of his administration, and he succeeded Yao on that great ruler's death, proving that the hereditary principle was considered dangerous in China, even at that remote date. He commenced his reign by offering to the supreme god and performed the customary ceremonies in honor of the mountains, the flowers, and the spirits, then held in veneration. He took the greatest pains to ensure that justice should be done to all. It is evident that there were schools in this day, for he gave orders that nothing but the bamboo should be used for the correction of insubordinate pupils. Chung wished faults commenced without malice prepense to be pardoned, but severe punishments to be inflicted on the incorrigible and on those who abused their strength or their authority. He was anxious, however, that judges under him should temper their justice with mercy. The ministers of state had names suggesting a pastoral origin, for they were all called mon, a word answering to our shepherd. When Chung gave them their appointments, he would say to them, You must treat those who come from a distance with humanity, instruct those who are near to you, esteem and encourage men of talent, believe in the virtuous and charitable, and confide in them and lastly have nothing to do with those whose manners are corrupt. He would also say to them sometimes, If I do wrong, you must tell me of it. You would be to blame if you praise me to my face and speak differently of me when my back is turned. The Shu King tells us further that having appointed a man skilled in music to teach that art to children of the great ones of his kingdom, Chung said to him, See that your pupils are sincere and polite, ready to make allowances for others, obliging and sedate. Teach them to be firm without being cruel. Inculcate discernment. But take care that they do not become conceited. He appointed a censor to preside over public meetings where speeches were made, saying to him, I have an extreme aversion for those who use inflammatory language. Their harangues sow discord and do much to injure the work of those who endeavor to do good. The excitement and the fears they arouse lead to public disorders. Would it not be well for a similar formula to be pasted up in every place of public meeting at the present day? Every three years, Chung instituted an inquiry into the conduct of the officials of his dominions, recompensing those who had done well and punishing those who had done ill. Few other sovereigns have merited the eulogy pronounced on Chung by one of his ministers. His virtues, said the critic, are not tarnished by faults. In the care he takes of his subjects, he shows great moderation, and in his government, his grandeur of soul is manifest. If he has to punish, the punishment does not descend from parents to children, 
But if he has to give a reward, the benefit extends to the descendants of those recompensed. With regard to involuntary errors, he pardons them without inquiring whether they are great or small. Voluntary faults, however apparently trivial, he punishes. In doubtful cases, the penalty inflicted is light, but if a service rendered is in question, the reward is great. He would rather run the risk of letting a criminal escape the legal punishment than of putting an innocent person to death. The same minister thus defines a fortunate man. He is the one who knows how to combine prudence with indulgence, determination with integrity, reserve with frankness, humility with great talents, consistency with complacence, justice and accuracy with gentleness, moderation with discernment, a high spirit with docility, and power with equity. The Huanghe, or Yellow River, the mighty stream which rises in Tibet and flings itself into the Gulf of Pichili, after a course of some 3,000 miles, had from time immemorial been the cause of constant and terrible catastrophes in the districts it traversed. Chung therefore sent for a talented engineer named Yu and ordered him to superintend the work of making canals and embankments to remedy the evil. There had been a specially destructive inundation just before this appointment, and the sacred book contains Yu's own account of what he had accomplished, couched, it must be owned, in anything but modest terms. When, he says, the great flood reached to heaven, when it surrounded the mountains and covered the hills, the unfortunate inhabitants were overwhelmed by the waters. Then I climbed on the four means of transport. I followed the mountains, and I cut through the woods. I laid up stores of grain and meat to feed the people. I made channels for the river compelling them to flow towards the sea. In the country, I dug canals to connect the rivers with each other. I planted seed in the earth, and by dint of work, something to live upon was won from the soil. The memory of these vast undertakings has remained engraven in the minds of the Chinese, and they still rank you with undying gratitude. For all that, however, the Huanghe has continued to be a menace to the empire. For in 1789, and again in 1819, it overflowed its banks, causing a considerable amount of damage to property and killing countless numbers of the riverside population. Only twelve years ago, the Wayward River, justly called by the sufferers from its ravages, China's sorrow, burst its southern embankment near Chongchon in the inland province of Shenxi and poured in one great mass over the whole of the densely populated Hunan, drowning millions of helpless people and undoing the work of centuries. In a word, what the erratic river will do next is one of the chief problems of the physical future of China. It has already shifted its course no less than nine times in its troubled career, and on account of the great rapidity of its stream, it is of little use for navigation. Could you have foreseen the destruction of all the grand works of which he boasted, he would probably have taken a less exalted view of what he had accomplished. However that may be, his contemporaries were so impressed by his ability, and the great Chung so admired his virtue and talent, that he was chosen as heir in the lifetime of that mighty sovereign. The dialogue said to have taken place between the emperor and his subject on the question of the succession to the throne is curious and interesting. Come, 
said Chung to Yu. I have been reigning for 33 years. My advanced age and growing infirmities prevent me from giving the necessary application to affairs of state. I wish you to reign instead. Do your utmost to acquit yourself worthily of the task. I am not virtuous enough to govern well, replied Yu. The people will not obey me. He then recommended someone else. Chung, however, insisted in the following terms. When we had everything to fear from the great inundation, you worked with eagerness and rectitude. You rendered the greatest services, and your talents and wisdom were made manifest throughout the whole country. Although you have led an unassuming life with your family, although you have served the state well, you have not considered that a reason to dispense with work. And this is no ordinary virtue. You have no pride. There is no one in the country superior to you in good qualities. None other has done such great things, and yet you do not set a high value on your own conduct. There is no one in the country whose merit excels your own. So you became chief ruler, and his name was associated by posterity with that of Yao and of Chung. The sacred book has preserved many of his sayings, and I will quote the most beautiful here. He who obeys reason is happy. He who resists it is unhappy. Virtue is the foundation of good government. The first task of government is to provide the people governed with all that is necessary for their subsistence and preservation. The next thing is to make the population virtuous, to teach them the proper use of everything, and lastly, to protect them from all which jeopardizes their health or their life. The prince who understands men well will appoint none to public offices, but those who are wise. His generous heart and liberality will win him love. When you died, the chiefs of the people unfortunately failed to carry on the custom of choosing as a successor to the throne the wisest and most illustrious of their number. The law of hereditary right was recognized, and dynasties henceforth succeeded each other in China as elsewhere, each lasting a long or short time, according to whether the people were or were not satisfied. There was, however, one salutary exception to the usual interpretation of the hereditary principle. The reigning emperor could choose as successor the son he considered the most intelligent of his children. And, as a Chinese ruler generally had at least 50 children, without counting the girls, there is no difficulty in making a selection. End of chapter 1